0: This episode of The Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by Pitney Bowes. No matter what your small office needs or sends, Pitney Bowes SendPro C200 has you covered. The C200 lets you send mail and packages right from your desk. Plus, save three cents a letter and up to 39% off retail shipping rates. Start saving today and you get a free 60-day trial of a Pitney Bowes C200. Visit us online at pb.com mlb. That's pb.com slash MLB. Terms apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Zach Cram and I am an editorial assistant at The Ringer, filling in today for Michael Bauman, who's so afraid of Orbit the mascot that he's packed up and fleeing Houston entirely. As always, we are a part of The Ringer Podcast Network where you can wrap up your Westworld Season 2 experience with Westworld The Recapables. We also have Ringer FC, our official soccer podcast, that will update you with the latest news from the World Cup. And be sure to listen to the latest edition to the network, our music podcast, On Shuffle, with host Micah Peters. And be sure to check out theringer.com, where we have extensive World Cup coverage, everything you need to know about what's going to happen in NBA free agency, and more. But today we're talking baseball as the season nears its halfway point. Helping me perform the Waxahachi Swap, it's Michael Bauman. Michael, how are you?
1: Hey, you're in my
0: seat. And you're in mine. Funny how that works.
1: Thanks for pinch hitting for me.
0: Yes, and today we're going to be talking about The trade deadline, which is coming up in about a month on July 31st, and now that your favorite time of the MLB season, the draft is over, teams have switched their focus to trades. Kelvin Herrera, the Royals closer, went from Kansas City to Washington last week as the big first post-draft trade, and July 4th is generally when blockbusters start start to take shape, trade talks intensify, and we're here to preview that today. So the first question for you just generally is is there a, a single team need that you think definitely needs to be addressed for a contender either a team that's guaranteed a playoff spot and just needs to improve in October or a team that needs to try to get to October in the first place the the most glaring need you see
1: I think the the need that could could uh, move the needle the most I think it's the bullpen with the Phillies. I think they've got a lot of interesting young hitters. And at any point in time, you know, not all of them are hitting it at one time, but at any one time, some of them are hitting uh, with Jared Eikhoff uh, coming back in particular. They've got a really nice promising rotation. I think uh, if they get to October, they could be with Nolan Arietta and Nick Pavetta pitching the way he is. I think they could be uh, a lot of fun, but, They've got Sir Anthony Dominguez, and that's it. Uh, and we've seen this a couple times in the last week. Uh, most recently, um, on Sunday uh, against the Nationals, they just they need a couple more competent relievers. And in that respect, they're uh, not too far from where the Nationals were last year. And beyond that, I, you know, the Mariners could use another pitcher. Um, it's this is going to be an interesting deadline for teams sort of on that bubble.
0: The interesting thing about this deadline is something we've sort of touched on before, which is. The starting pitcher class is really weak. Usually there are one or two guys who will be free agents next offseason who teams can rent and then don't need to pay a huge premium because it's only for about two or three months that they'll be acquiring them. But this year you have Jay Happ from the Blue Jays, who I actually like a lot. You have Tyson Ross from the Padres. Beyond that, there aren't really many rental options available. Maybe Cole Hamels, but he's expensive and kind of having a down year. So for a team like the Mariners, I'm not sure what kind of caliber they'll be able to upgrade. On the other hand, there are a ton of bullpen pieces available. Herrera was just the first. There are a ton left. Is there one that you think would be your favorite among the class who might move?
1: Well, the interest, the really interesting guy who I think might have the potential to be part of an interesting trade, as well as set the market as Brad Hand um just in terms of his his versatility you know his being left-handed which makes him attractive uh there's been a lot of, of hand rigging with the astros that do they need a uh a, a left-handed reliever or can they do what they did last year skip by pretty much without one just rely on chris Devensky with his changeup to be their de facto uh lefty specialist and I, you know i think they can get away with that and particularly with a a guy like hand um, the Padres are asking so much for him that uh, if he moves, it'll have to be a special deal. Although you'd be um, just in terms of the kind of pitcher he is, I think he's uh, the most attractive guy out there. Um, You know, you mentioned the the Mariners and this being kind of a weak, uh, a weak class for pitchers. I I think we've talked about this before, but that's not a bad place to be for them. Uh, yeah, you know, I think Hamels would make a lot of sense if they could take on the the salary for the rest of the year. Just because the Mariners don't really have that strong a farm system, and you know, look at the Angels trying to stay in the race—they've um, their farm system is better than it was a year or two ago, but it's still—you know—I don't know if they've got the juice to to go out and make the Jose Quintana trade, for instance, or yeah, the Chris Sale trade. Certainly not. Um, so, getting—you know—if they can if if a guy like Hamels or Hap. Um, Uh, You know, maybe Von Nova is another guy that can move. Those are guys where you can take a couple B or C plus prospects and sort of string them together and pitch a team on, well, you know, the next Cole Hamels is here, but here's 18 years of team control. Maybe one of these guys pans out.
0: Yeah, we'll touch on sort of bigger fish starting pitchers in a second, but... Just quickly about hand, lefties this year are hitting 068, 163, 182 against him. That's a negative That's, that's a negative OPS plus, which seems impossible. And it's funny, I was uh, doing some research for this segment last night, and I googled Brad Hand asking price and found uh, John Morosi from MLB Network reported that the Padres are looking for someone like Raphael Devers in return, which seems really steep. Uh, but when I googled it, I found all these results... And realize that most of them were from last summer, which shows just how long a hand has been reportedly on the market. But B, it shows perhaps why he hasn't moved yet, because the Padres are asking for so much. And that seems like a lot for a lever. I think uh, we don't necessarily expect a Gleyber Torres type move uh, that was sort of outside the bounds of what we would expect a reliever to fetch in return. But Hand isn't just for this year. He's under team control for $6.5 million next season, $7 million in 2020, $10 million on a team option in 2021. So he's not just a single-season upgrade like uh, some of these other pitchers we'll talk about. He's under team control for multiple years, and that's why the Padres are perhaps more reluctant to move him, which leads into the other pitchers on the market like Jacob deGrom, or Noah Syndergaard or Blake Snell. Uh, do you think that teams like the Mets and Rays should consider moving these young controlled aces for potentially bigger returns?
1: Well, I think they should be uh, interested in moving anybody for the right price. I mean, if some the nice thing about having multiple years of control, and this is the the hand thing, I think this. With Han in, in particular, it's an interesting situation because the Padres have gotten that kind of package for a reliever before when they traded Craig Kimball. And A.J. Preller, perhaps as much as any other GM in the game, does not give a damn what anybody thinks, anybody in the industry thinks. So if, he, if there's a guy who's willing to play chicken for the next couple years of team control for Brad Hand, this is it. And, you know, this is... What's interesting is I don't know that waiting really, uh, really reduces Hand's value. I mean, short of injury, uh, which is always a concern for a pitcher, but it, it, you're getting a guy like Hand for not for a year. You know, you're, you're not looking at the the next couple of years so much as you're looking for ten to fifteen very specific innings in October, and whether you know that's why the. The package for Andrew Miller, uh, in 2016 was not that different from the package, uh, from, for, uh, Aurelis Chavin, even though looking back on it, any, any discussion of those trades is going to be viewed through the, through the lens of what, Gla- uh, Glaber Torres has done since, um, you know, for, for hand in particular, it's, it's what can he do this, this season. And then the, the next couple years are sort of a bonus, um, but Syndergaard and DeGrom, I think, are, I mean, those are the kind of ace-level pitchers that, that you would trade your entire farm system for. It just takes, I mean, if the Mets trade them, that's a big statement. And I don't know if ownership would get behind that necessarily, even if Sandy Alderson, who's just in a very strange position and has been since 2015, really, uh, even if that's something that he wants to do.
0: Right. I wonder also what the market for those guys would truly be because, like you mentioned, a team like Seattle or the Angels first is on the bubble and second don't have the prospects to make such a deal. Then you have other contenders like the Dodgers and the Astros and Cleveland that hasn't shown an inclination to make these kind of deals and probably doesn't need a starter anyway. That kind of only leaves the Yankees and maybe like the Braves or Brewers as teams that have the potential to to make this kind of trade with the Yankees in particular. The rest of their roster is pretty solidly constructed, but I have no idea who starts game two of a playoff series for them. But then uh-huh. you go to teams like the Braves, and this gets to what you were talking about with the Phillies, about maybe teams that were rebuilding and might be ready a year or two early, and is it worth it to jump in for Atlanta, whether it's for a starting pitcher or someone like Manny Machado on the side of the infield. We haven't talked about hitters yet, but Machado would be the prize as a rental who's a free agent after this season and could really help a team that you know needs an infield upgrade. And Atlanta's infield has been fine, but Machado's certainly an upgrade over Dansby Swanson or Johan Camargo. Do you think yeah. Atlanta should jump in? They, they currently have a multiple-game lead over both Washington and Philadelphia, Fangraphs has them with roughly a 50% chance of making the playoffs. That's kind of the spot on the wind curve where adding Machado, even if it's only an upgrade of a win or two makes the biggest difference.
1: So I think for Atlanta, yes, but it depends. I, for the Phillies, no, because I think they would have a shot at signing Machado in the offseason, and Machado would have to be out of his mind to sign, a, sign an extension anywhere. And, I think the Orioles, if they look at at Machado, I think the Orioles are looking at Machado and thinking this is our one shot. We got to get everything for him now, which is why I think it was a mistake to hold on to him this long. Because you know, if they take it to the Dodgers, for instance, right when Corey Seager gets hurt, and I know we talked about it then, he's more valuable than, uh than he is now. And I, you know, I think the the Braves might look into their their farm system is just so deep uh, that they could afford to overpay for Machado now, and I think it makes more sense for them because they've got those those couple games up. You know, if you look at the Braves roster for the, versus the Phillies roster, there's not a whole lot of difference, but if you're just looking at the next couple months, I think you need that that three-and-a-half game, I think, uh, is the, the cushion right now. Like, that cushion makes a ton of difference when you're considering the rental, um, and particularly if you're considering, you know, I don't know what the Braves package is, but, you know, if I'm looking at the, the Phillies, I'd look for... Um, for Sixto Sanchez in any Machado deal. And I don't, I don't think that makes sense for them to give him up for a player they could sign for free. Um, now, if you're looking at one of those pitchers, uh, and this is why, you know, the Jake Arrieta contract in the offseason made so much sense. It's not just... You know they're getting him maybe before they're ready to contend, but they've also got him for a year or two for now. From now when they will be ready to contend, and cost-controlled pitcher, you know Snell uh, is a great example of this. If you know, I don't know what the Rays are, are looking for, uh, you know, what their plan is as a franchise for the next few years. Um, but you know you look at the at the Mets um, certainly in the abstract, like uh, a guy like Degrom, a guy like. Um, Syndergaard, who'd be uh, would would be under team control, would line up with that with uh, a team that could sort of grow into its ace, if that makes sense. And that team control for a starting pitcher, uh, uh, that's worth, I think, paying a, a little extra, definitely or definitely maybe a lot extra compared to somebody like Half who's just a rental.
0: Yeah, I think the Phillies would kind of have to be out of their minds to trade a prospect like Sixto Sanchez just for a couple months of Machado. If you look at like what JD Martinez got from the Diamondbacks going back to Detroit last year, that was for three no name prospects. I'm not saying Machado Mm -hmm. will bring back that caliber to Baltimore, but I don't think position players bring back nearly what starting pitchers do just because October allows you to drive your best pitchers into the ground. Unlike with position players, Atlanta, that's why they intrigue me so much for Machado. When Fangrass did their mid-season prospect rankings a couple weeks ago, the Orioles didn't have a single player on the list, but the Braves had 14. So it's definitely a situation mm-hmm. where, you know, Atlanta can trade their number 10, 12, and 14 prospects and not lose much of its top-end talent, but still give Baltimore three guys who'd be the best in that system. And one, that speaks poorly to Baltimore, but two, it does speak to what, teams like Atlanta or the Yankees or Milwaukee has in their prospect depth allows them to dip into that pool. Is there any other position player besides Machado who you're really interested to see where he might
1: end up? It feels like the JT Real talk has just sort of gone dark. Um, and, you know, there, there aren't that many good catchers. And I think, yeah, the Marlins certainly have shown that they're willing to part with anybody for the right price. Um, He's a guy who, you know, we talked about him, him in Washington, uh, as Matt Wieters' ages. There are a bunch of places where I think a, a guy like him could make sense? Um, just to go back to starting pitchers, though, like I, I don't think there's such a thing as an overpay for for Degrom. I think, you know, that you look back at the at the sale trade, um, I, you know, I'd do that again if I were Boston. Uh, even giving up Mancada, I'd give up Sixto Sanchez and, you know four or five other guys for a pitcher like DeGrom, they just don't come around that often. Um, so, and to JD Martinez in particular, I think I, I'd be worried about using that as a, as a, uh, a market center just because I think Martinez in particular, maybe because of his defensive metrics or because he sort of played under the radar as like the one process Astro who didn't pan out until he left and then playing in the shadow of Miguel Cabrera and Victor Martinez. Um, For some reason, I think he's still wildly underrated and that might show up in the, in the trade value too.
0: That's a good point. I think with real Mudo, He's another case where I'm not quite sure what the market is for him. Uh, Boston could also potentially be involved, though I don't know if they have the prospects at this point. It'll be interesting. I think there are also a lot of, like with Happ and Ross, there are potentially lower level hanging fruit, like Scooter Jeanette, who for the Reds has somehow been one of the best hitters in baseball over the last two years. He could make a difference. Someone like Mike Mustakas, who's a rental a lot of guys who probably won't fetch much of a return, but plugged into the right spot could add some run production. Uh, and I guess over the next couple of weeks, I'm sure we'll be talking about these players more, hopefully reacting to some trades because they're fun and fun to talk about and debate who won and who lost as we love to do at the ringer. And we'll do that next time, hopefully with the seats reversed again.
1: Yeah, I'll, uh, once I'm off the road, I'm doing the. I'll be in Michigan by then, so I'll I'll have done the full Brad Osmond by the time we talk again.
0: Nobody wants to do the full Brad Osmond, but enjoy.
1: All right, I'll talk to you later.
0: All right, before we chat with Ringer Copy Chief Craig Gaines, let me tell you about Teeter. If you have back pain, or even if you have been lucky enough to avoid it, you need a Teeter inversion table to keep your back and joints feeling great. As the best known name in inversion tables since 1981, Teeter has been safety certified by UL Laboratories and FDA cleared as a Class 1 medical device for back pain and related conditions. It uses gravity and your own body weight to decompress the spine and relieve pressure on your discs and surrounding nerves. Decompressing on a Teeter for a few minutes a day is a great way to maintain a healthy spine and active lifestyle without the pain. No wonder over 3 million people have put their trust in Teeter. For a limited time, you can get the Teeter Inversion Table, plus bonus accessories and a free pair of gravity boots that let you invert at home or at the gym. To get this deal and save over $148, just go to teeter.com MLB. You'll also get free shipping, a 60-day money-back guarantee, and free returns. So there's no risk. But you have to go to teeter.com MLB. That's T-E-E-T-E-R slash MLB to get the teeter with bonus accessories and a free pair of gravity boots. All right, he told me he wanted to talk about Matt Kemp and the concept of time. It's my boss, the Ringer's Copy Chief, and our resident horologist, Craig Gaines. Hello, Craig. Zach, it's
2: a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited to talk about Matt Kemp
0: so, on uh, May 16th, the Dodgers lost their sixth straight game, all to the Reds and Marlins. They were 16-26 and 26 at the time, tied for last place in the NL West, missing their star shortstop and most of their rotation due to injury. Yet since then, somehow, they're an MLB best 26-9, they're up to second place, and they're only a game and a half behind the Diamondbacks. So before we get into Matt Kemp and the concept of time, how are you feeling about this Dodger season in general, which did not start at all as we expected, but they've basically played how
2: they were supposed to over the last month plus? I'm I'm slowly reintegrating after the pain of the World Series last year. I'm not going to lie. I wasn't quite ready to just hop back in uh, with both feet uh, right right after that. Um, that was, that was a weird, very stressful, uh, very memorable for all the wrong reasons time, uh, last, last season. And so at the beginning of the season, I, I honestly told myself, okay, I'm going to just have to let this coast for a little bit and I'm going to have to find my way back in. And they honestly made that a little easy at the, at the start with that, uh, with that start to the season that you just, that you just described. Um, but since then, kind of like right on time, basketball is over. Uh, football is still co- sort of like in the distance. Now, right on time where it's actually like really time for me to start paying attention to baseball, here are the Dodgers. And I feel like I have enough space between the World Series and now to really make myself vulnerable again to this to this team. And um, thank God, God, they're actually, you know, giving me um, some some reason uh, for help. Um, they're looking great. I don't know how they've been doing it. They've just been, the rotation has just been um, a medical ward, and um, losing Seeger was a real bummer. Not having Turner at the beginning of the season was a real bummer, but I don't know. Uh, you know, they just keep finding guys like Max Muncie. And Turner is now back, and they they really seem to be putting it together. And um, you know this series last weekend against the Mets. I mean, I know it was the Mets, but they just they just looked great. And um, I'm feeling I'm starting to feel really good about uh, about the Dodgers again. So
0: in the series against the Mets on Saturday, I believe uh, Kershaw and was coming back from injury. Right. He was starting against Jacob Degrom, but the person who stole the show with a big basically game ending grand slam was Matt Kemp who is back with the Dodgers and he came over basically because of salary machinations Mm -hmm. because the Braves and Dodgers exchanged essentially the same amount of money, but it counted different for Mm -hmm. luxury tax purposes. I didn't expect Matt Kemp to even make the opening day roster. Uh, I think a lot of people didn't, but he's there and he, hit and he kept hitting and he's continued to keep hitting where are you with matt kemp and the aforementioned concept of time
2: it's 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 been amazing i mean that grand slam on saturday was obviously like any respectable major leaker should have hit that specific pitch out but kemp just pasted it and it really just sort of crystallized like this is a matt kemp that no one thought that we would see again and you know it's funny Kemp's first two significant home runs of this season. Uh, his homer to dead center in the freeway exhibition series right before opening day at Dodger Stadium against the Angels, and his first uh, uh, homers in the the regular season this year against Dodgers um, at Dodger Stadium. Joe Davis had the same call, and he said Matt Kemp turning back the clock, and that's exactly what it feels like. I said this weekend after I hit him, saw him hit that moonshot. I said I felt like I feel like I'm in a time machine watching this guy, and this is just something that fans always want to see with players like this, but seemingly never do. Kemp, as we all know, in 2011, should have won the MVP. Uh, he was second behind Ryan Braun, um, right ahead of Prince Fielder. Good, good year for the, for the Brewers. And, you know, since then, it was like a very steep descent uh, for Kemp. Um, I think he got injured the very next season, and he just never really put it together after that. And it was heartbreaking. We had this guy who, I mean, he was just custom made for Los Angeles. He just looks great in a Dodgers uniform. He's comfortable around celebrities. He, you know, he was at least like serviceable in the outfield and just like he could hit for average, he could hit for power. Um, He was great. We really thought that with Kemp and Kershaw, we really thought we just had sort of like the cornerstones uh, for the next decade. And that obviously turned out to be the case with Kershaw, but way too soon, Kemp was just all of a sudden um, off the radar. And, you know, he's, he hung around for a few more seasons. It was funny. The team was really starting to take off, um, but Kemp was not. And it just, it, it had one of these uncomfortable things where you see this guy either in the lineup or on the bench and you just kind of think, this just doesn't This just doesn't fit. Nothing about this is right. And then when um, he was exiled to San Diego, it just got even more sad because who wants to play in San Diego, especially after you've been playing in Los Angeles. And, you know, by the time he got to Atlanta, you know, he just seemed to really be fitting this narrative that you see about – um extremely talented players who at one point seemed like maybe to be in a hall of fame conversation but just because of the vicissitudes of injury and time it just wasn't going to work out and then when he came over um to begin the year i think people felt a little uncomfortable they felt one like oh we already tried this this didn't work this is just this is um this is just this is a bad idea, especially because, as you said, no one thought that he was going to even make the roster. And then when he did, I, I think some fans just kind of thought, wait a minute, if Kemp is making the roster, what's wrong with this roster? But then right away, he started to hit. And even when the Dodgers were struggling early, there was this one thing about the team that was really just sort of keeping everyone's attention. And it was at first what seemed like an anomaly with Kemp but he's just kept on going. And right now he's, I think he's second in the all-star voting. Um, His numbers are not on pace to match 2011, but they certainly are on pace to have a season that looks like it would come, you know, a few years after a 2011 type season. And um, I I don't know. I, I can't really think of too many other players who had a peak like this, took a six or seven year break in the wilderness and then all of a sudden they're back. And, you know, we, we, we haven't even reached the halfway point of the season, but it's been long enough that this isn't just a flash in the pan. This is actually something to pay attention to. Right.
0: The all-star thing is interesting. Matt Kemp hasn't made an all-star team since 2012. And that all-star team included the likes of Derek Jeter and Prince Fielder, Raphael for call. Chipper Jones was on that all-star team. Yeah. So that was a really long time ago. Uh, The thing that's most impressive to me about Kemp isn't just his hitting. Even when he was in San Diego and then Atlanta, he wasn't necessarily a good hitter, but he was at least okay. Mm -hmm. The issue was his defense. Uh, StatCast, the new technology system, rates guys by what they call outs above average. Mm -hmm. Essentially, how many plays does someone make versus an average outfielder? It goes back three years. In 2016, Matt Kemp ranked last out of 272 outfielders Mm with negative 23 outs above average. In 2017, Matt Kemp ranked last among 268 outfielders with negative 18 outs above average. This year, he's at one, positive one. He is tied with Brett Gardner. He is tied with Bradley Zimmer. He is tied with Alex Gordon. like these are gold glove caliber defenders. Yeah. and yes, Kemp has still been coming out a lot as a defensive replacement in late innings, and he still plays left field, which is probably the easiest outfield spot. But if you are a good hitter and an average defender, that makes you a really valuable
2: player. And to me, that's almost more surprising. it's it, it, he just he just looks right. For the first time in a long time, a lot of people have talked about how he he shed some pounds over the offseason and he just showed up to train. I know, you know, he shows up to training camp for the best, best, best shape of his life, but he he really did. This he, is the one case where that's actually true. It's actually true. And, you know, to go along with, I actually didn't know that about his fielding. That's, that's mind blowing. To go along with that, you know, I mean, his, his swing is just looking majestic. That home run against the Mets was just, just gorgeous. You know, he's looking like the the camp of old in a lot of ways, but there's there's another, there's this sort of this more like settled sense to him. Back in his first heyday with the Dodgers, he was a fairly mercurial guy. And, you know, there was definitely some ego going on. And there were, you know, th- there were times when he had friction with, with the team. I think the, the fans let a lot of that slide just because he was doing so well. But he seems to have really benefited from putting together a major league season, uh, career and just seeing the ups and downs of that. And I would have to think that he is a really helpful presence in the clubhouse these days for, um, you know, along with Chase Sutley, you know, for a lot of these these younger players. It's, it's fascinating that we're now talking about Matt Kemp. One is both a resurgent player on the field, but also a guy who now has gained enough life experience to really sort of like be one of these anchors for the team when, you know, think about when Kemp was coming up. He was coming up in sort of that uh, that uh, golden generation of prospects along with guys like Kershaw, James Loney, Chad Billingsley, Russell Martin. And, you know, like the, the, when you first think about Matt Kemp as a Dodgers fan, you think about a young, really talented guy. Young, really talented guy. And I think we had kind of all had closed the book on thinking about him as a talented veteran presence. We kind of just put that all out of our heads. But now, now here he is, and it, talking about Kemp in the and Kempian time, let's call it. If we're if we're talking about Kempian time, also think, he's also useful to look at Kemp and think about where the Dodgers were and where they are now. 2011, again, that season when he should have won the MVP. That was a great season for Kemp. That was a terrible year for the Dodgers. That was the worst point of the McCourt ownership. That was the season when you had the Brian Stowe beating on opening day, which really just started to get people thinking about the dereliction of that, that ownership regime. People kind of really started to say, oh yeah, Dodger Stadium is great, but they're, they're cutting back in some places. And this is not... The, you know, the, the, you know, one of the centerpieces of, of, of Major League Baseball that it, that it should be. Um, the team did not perform well that year and attendance was way down that year. Um, you know, and then since then, uh, there was an ownership change. I believe it was the next season or the season after that. Um, then you had that next golden generation of prospects coming up with Seeker, uh, et cetera. And, you know, it, it, it really kind of is helpful to look at, here's where they were, here's where they are now. And the, like kind of the one through line, along with Kershaw, is Matt Kemp. And he's just the one who we never would have expected to, to see. The next thing I was going to mention was Kemp's
0: previous two All-Star seasons were 2011 and 2012, which were also the last time the Dodgers didn't win the division. They've won five straight since then. If you look at the playoff odds now, they're a game and a half behind Arizona, but they're probably a stronger team going forward. Arizona's suffering some depth issues, particularly in the rotation. Right now, they have, according to Fangraphs, 75% chance of winning the division, 89% chance of making the playoffs. The Dodgers have been maybe the streakiest team in baseball, not only this year, but going Back several years, last Mm -hmm. year they had the horrible stretch in August and September, but they've also won, you know, 42 out of 50 games. So do you expect the Dodgers to continue putting pressure on Arizona and maybe even be in a position to buy at the trade deadline uh, and
2: continue their division streak? I mean, I, I always expect the Dodgers to be a streaky team i i i kinda, I expect we have enough time in the season for both to happen. We have enough time for another losing streak, and we have enough time for another hot streak and honestly you're exactly right. this is just for whatever reason, regardless of whether it's um you know uh Doc or if it's Don mattingly in the in the dugout. this is just what this team has done over the last last few seasons in terms of what I expect them to do i mean i I don't know i I, I do know that. They're really trying to bide their time for uh free agency next offseason. So I I wouldn't expect them to make a huge splash. But I don't know if if Kershaw really kind of like settles in again after his injury, if we can get Rich Hill back, if we can get Ryu back in some kind of serviceable serviceable form. I don't know. I mean, maybe throw in um, some support for Kenley in the bullpen. And I, I did not think that I would be saying this, but the, rota- the the lineup is looking a lot more solid than I thought it would, especially after we lost Seager. I really thought that that was it. But, you know, Turner is still working his way back into form, but I think that he'll be able to do it. And um, it'd be great if they could shore up second base. That's just been, that's kind of been a... Sore spot for them for a long time. For D Gordon had one really good season for them, but then before and after that, it's been it's uh, it's been one, one sort of uh, weak spot for them. But I think that they can get by with uh, you know with w- what they've been doing so far, as long as as long as just you know some of their injured guys kind of just come back and perform the way they have. I think, I think this is also a team that's smart enough to be patient when they know that's the smart thing to do. What do you What do you think? Yeah, I think I, I was one of the the first people when Seager got hurt
0: to be like, I wasn't worried about the Dodgers' slow start because they have such a base of talent and so much depth, but Seager's injury coupled with all their rotation problems, and that was still back when Arizona was off to a roaring start, had me worried. I'm no longer as worried for them. I think if you had to pick between the three National League division favorites entering the year, Chicago, Washington, and the Dodgers, all of whom are just a couple games behind more surprising division leaders, I'm actually, at this point, the most confident in LA to usurp the the pretenders at this point, just in part because I think Atlanta and Milwaukee are staunch uh, opposition for mm. Washington and Chicago, mm-hmm. respectively, but also because I think the Dodgers really are returning to form. Just last night, Kenta Maeda, who was out for a few weeks and then struggled a bit once he got off the disabled list, he threw seven shutout innings against the Cubs. Kenley Jansen looks like his April concerns are no longer a problem. Uh, Once again, the Dodgers will probably end up in October, and we'll see what Kershaw does again, Uh, which is, I guess, the bane of your Dodger fandom existence. So. We'll have to bring you back on then.
2: Definitely. I mean, and, and if we are back in October, th- there'll be both the Kershaw redemption narrative and what the heck, maybe we'll even be talking about a, a Kemp uh, comeback redemption narrative. What What a time this is. What a time, indeed. Thanks so much, Craig. Thanks, Zach. And now let's call the bullpen and bring
0: out our closer, Ben Lindbergh. Hi, Ben. Hello. So I just finished talking with Craig Craig Gaines and we were chatting about Matt Kemp and the Dodgers who have been playing really well recently. So in the opposite vein, you and I are going to talk about the AL Central, which is full of teams who have not (laughs) been playing very well recently.
3: There's one exception which we can talk about. First, let me say that I'm just proud to be present for the podcast where you Wally Pitt Bauman, but I am here to talk about the AL Central and you're right. (laughs) I will say this, it's sort of a spoiler for an article that will soon be appearing on the ringer.com, but also not really a spoiler because it probably won't surprise people. This year's AL Central is on track to be the worst division ever. I have a metric that combines out-of-division performance and strength of schedule for all divisions going back to 1969, and right now, this year's AL Central is at the very bottom of that list. Collectively, they've been outscored by an average of 1.2 runs per game when they're playing non-AL Central opponents this year. That's really bad.
0: And the interesting thing about it is it's not all that different from what we expected coming into the season. Heading Mm -hmm. into the season, the White Sox, Royals, and Tigers, we all knew were rebuilding. They had some of the worst win projections in baseball. I guess you could say the Twins have disappointed a bit. Even Cleveland is disappointed a bit relative to expectations. But it's one thing to see the projected win numbers entering the season, and it's another thing entirely to see that actually manifests in reality, I think.
3: (laughs) Yeah. A few of these teams at least have good reasons for being as bad as they are in that the Royals and the Tigers are coming off very successful periods and they're just kind of aging out of the time when they were good. And then the White Sox are on the other side of their window, right? They are doing a really aggressive rebuild and they'll probably be good in a year or two, but right now things are very much still coming together. So they all have excuses. And yeah, I think we expected the twins to be a bit better than they've been to this point. And because of the competition, it's sort of hard to assess how good the Indians actually are. They've played 77 games overall, but thanks to the unbalanced schedule, 38 of those games have come against the AL Central. That's almost half. And if you look at their record, they're 43 and 34 overall as we speak. That's good. But they're 22-7 and against the White Sox, Tigers, and Royals, which means that they're 21-27 and against all other teams. So they have more wins against those three terrible AL Central teams than they do against all other teams at baseball combined.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about Cleveland a bit. They were really struggling uh, even just a week ago, but then went on a seven-game winning streak. Those wins, as you might expect, given the stats you just said, We're against Minnesota, (laughs) Chicago, and Detroit. So (laughs) Detroit was actually kind of peskily hanging around. They were only two or two and a half games out a week ago. Now they've lost six in a row and that's where we expected them to be. But Cleveland will essentially continue to play this caliber of schedule for the rest of the season. They have the easiest projected uh, remaining strength of schedule among any team in baseball. They don't. Really have any competition in the AL Central. They're perhaps the biggest shoe in to win the division of any team in baseball at this point. Do you think this matters for how we evaluate a team heading into what we assume will be October given the talent Cleveland already has on its
3: roster? I think it should, right? There are a couple schools of belief about this. I think there's the idea that good teams have to beat good teams. And then there's the accompanying idea that good teams have to beat up on bad teams. And ideally you do both, of course, but I don't know that it matters that much. I don't look at teams that struggle in particular against good teams and say that they can't win in the playoffs, for instance. I think you just kind of all put it in one bucket combined and you evaluate the performance and you draw your conclusion. And certainly, the fact that the Indians are facing much weaker competition than the other top teams in the AL. I think we need to downgrade them because of that. Of course, they've been a good team for a while now, so it's not like this is coming out of nowhere. And last year, it took some time for them to break away in this division, which I think was sort of a surprise because they were expected to win in a walk then too. It's taken them a little longer than expected to distance themselves this year too, But they are finally putting some daylight between them and the also-rans. And so I think you break them down. And it's kind of funny because half of our staff is lamenting the Mets and how they've totally tanked since starting very well. And a lot of people point to them and say, well, you can't construct a team around starting pitching because these guys get hurt and then you're in trouble. The Indians have kind of constructed their team around starting pitching, but it's worked out really well for them because they've managed to keep their guys healthy and good. And so now not only do they have the aces they had before, Carrasco, Kluber, Clevenger has been better. But Trevor Bauer, to some people's pleasure and many other people's dismay, now is one of the best pitchers in the major leagues, I think we can say. Right now, as we speak, he leads all American League pitchers in Fangraph's war, which is either the best or the worst thing that's ever happened to baseball. But he's kind of designed a couple of breaking balls for himself, and they're working out really well. And so now they have a whole staff full of aces, and they're also pretty good at other things too. So I think it's a quality team, even though you do have to ding them a bit for the competition they're facing.
0: Yeah, I think their roster has almost turned into stars and scrubs type deal. They have Bauer, they have Kluber, they have Clevenger. And then if you look at their lineup, Francisco Lindor and Jose Ramirez are both in the top four among all position players in Fangraph's war, along with Mike Trout and Mookie Betts. Uh, Then you also have Michael Brantley, who's playing about as well as he has since he finished third in MVP voting. And then beyond them, you don't necessarily have anyone who's really been hitting. In the bullpen, you have what had been the worst bullpen in baseball up until a few weeks ago. I wrote about that in early (laughs) June, of course, since I wrote about them and said, well, they're probably going to turn things around either if they make a trade or just because these pitchers aren't all that bad. Since then, in the last three weeks, Cleveland has the third best bullpen in baseball behind only Houston and the Yankees. (laughs) So
3: The reverse ringer curse.
0: Yes, and and maybe that's because they have been playing the Tigers and White Sox, but as we said, they'll continue playing these teams for the rest of the season.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to attach that caveat to every stat you cite about the Indians, right? I could say that about Bauer; he's been great, but yes, he's he's faced these terrible teams a lot. So, for those of you who want to find fault with War, and I know that some of you are out there, that's one critique you can make: it doesn't account for strength of competition. It's a weak division. There's no way to get around that, and there will be no way to get around that. And maybe the Indians can tack up all the comments and the articles about the weak competition they're facing on the clubhouse wall to serve as some. Sort sort of motivation when they get to October. But I don't think any team had an easier and clearer path to the playoffs than the Indians do. And I don't know whether that matters. There are different schools of thought about that too, right? That it's good to just kind of win with a big lead and get a rest and other people think it's better to have to fight tooth and nail to get there. And I think the research has shown that it doesn't really matter in the long run. But given how good the other top teams in the AL are this year, And given that they look better even before you start accounting for the competition, I don't know that we can quite put Cleveland in their class right now. But in terms of odds of making the playoffs, obviously, there's much of a lock as anyone. And they also have, as you mentioned, two guys who are very much in the best baseball player besides Mike Trout conversation. The bullpen has been better, probably won't be as big a weapon as it was for them in the playoffs in recent seasons, but they have this pitching staff, which, according to some stats, was the best pitching staff ever last year. And of course, it hasn't always been there for them when the playoffs start, but if it is this year, that makes them as formidable as any team. And
0: what has made the Astros this year so dominant from the pitching staff is that they're great one through five. Dallas Keuchel is their fifth best pitcher. Yeah. Cleveland has had a fifth starter problem all season. Shane Bieber, the rookie call-up, has been fine over his last few starts, but for a while they were charting out guys like Josh Tomlin, who was allowing a home run every other inning. But if you go to a playoff series and Cleveland only needs their top four starters, all of a sudden they're rivaling Houston. They're probably better than Boston. They're certainly better than the Yankees at this point, which in part Last week, when Michael and I were talking about Houston, we said maybe we'd pick Cleveland to win the pennant at that point. When rosters condense and star power magnifies in October, that does help a roster like this.
3: Yeah, there is a benefit to being top heavy. All else being equal, of course, if you have some weak spots on your roster, it's easier to improve by a big margin. And the Indians are not typically the team that's making big upgrades at the deadline and and taking on payroll in the middle of a season. But if they wanted to, there are places where they can upgrade. And even if it's just a matter of getting to October where you can erase a lot of those weaknesses. As you're saying, it doesn't really matter if the back of your bullpen is bad or if the fringy fifth and sixth starters are bad because you get to October and it doesn't really matter. You just ride the best relievers in the bullpen really hard, as the Indians relievers have found out in recent years, and you just concentrate a a greater proportion of your innings in the hands of your best starters. So in that sense, you're right. I think the fact that they're not quite as strong top to bottom won't be as much of a handicap when it comes to the biggest games.
0: And spinning forward even further, with the division looking so bad this year and Not necessarily looking like a fluke because all these teams are rebuilding. Do we think that like next year Cleveland will once again be the only team above 500? I know Minnesota's kind of been disappointing, but I don't expect Detroit or Kansas City to be good in the next three years, let alone 2019.
3: No, fortunately for Cleveland, Detroit and Kansas City really rode out the end of their competitive period for as long as they possibly could. Rather than bail early and start the rebuilding process, they really kind of just gave it a run until the last dregs of their roster departed. That works in Cleveland's favor because those teams are probably going to be non-factors for a while. They're really just getting started on their rebuild. So it's going to be an extended period of non-competition for those two teams. I do think that the White Sox will get better pretty quickly. They had an unusual rebuild in that they had a lot of players who were really good and also under team control on very economical contracts. So when they decided to finally pull the plug and get started on that rebuild, I think they got a head start on it relative to other teams like the Royals and like the Tigers. So I do expect the White Sox to put up more of a fight. The Twins will probably be better. Really, the competition can't be any weaker than it's been this year, right? Because we're talking about the worst division ever. So it almost has to be better than that and harder for Cleveland to get back here. But I agree with you because of the way the division is set up, they're about as well positioned as any other team for the medium term.
0: I agree. And I I also agree that If any team is going to challenge them in the near future, it's probably the White Sox. There's been Mm -hmm. some discussion over the last week or two about whether the White Sox rebuild is a failure uh, because they've been the worst team in baseball since trading Sale and Eaton and Quintana. But I think it's probably too early to cast judgment on the success of this rebuild. One of the big prospects they got in the Quintana trade, Eloy Jimenez, was just promoted to to AAA after hitting like crazy in AA, they have Michael kopek in AAA as well. I understand that like Lucas Giolito has looked like one of the worst pitchers in baseball so far, but they have so much youth that it's probably too early to say. I'm on record as not being as enamored of the White Sox rebuild as some other people, but I also think if you're looking at the options here there's certainly a better bet in the next couple of years to take over.
3: Yeah, I think the fact that they're as bad as they are right now is in a sense a testament to just how fully they committed to this rebuild, which in general, I think is a good thing. It doesn't always work out, of course. And as more and more teams pursue the strategy, we are inevitably going to see it backfire on someone. Not every team can come out the other side and win the World Series like the Astros and like the Cubs when so many teams are rebuilding simultaneously. It gets harder to do. But I do think that even last season, and we were talking about, well, is the Braves rebuild hitting a rough patch? Are the Phillies actually going to get good? Because there were periods when they were struggling at the big league level and it looked like some of their prospects weren't panning out. And here they are contending for the division a little bit earlier than expected. So I think it's definitely premature to say that the White Sox are off track or even behind schedule. I think this is more or less working as they drew it up.
0: But in the meantime, I think If anything, the AL Central, besides Cleveland, will only get worse as the season progresses as these teams, I mean, the Royals have already traded John Jay and Kelvin Herrera. They'll probably end up shipping out Mike Moustakis. The Tigers could trade guys like Nick Castellanos and Shane Green, none of whom are necessarily all-star level players, but they're all decent. And that takes a Maybe a 400% winning team down to a 300% team, which only exacerbates Cleveland's advantage and helps your article about the worst (laughs) division in baseball history.
3: Yeah, and I actually looked ahead at the division's collective strength of schedule that's coming up, and it actually gets harder from here. (laughs) So you'd think that maybe the terrible results thus far, maybe they've just been facing tough opponents. No, they're gonna be facing even harder opponents from now on. So I agree, it's going to get even uglier.
0: Thank you so much, Ben. And we look forward to reading you on this terrible division. Thanks, Zach. Good talking to you. All right. Thank you to Michael Bauman, Craig Gaines, and Ben Lindbergh plus Brad Hand, Jacob deGrom, Matt Kemp, and Eloy Jimenez. And thank you for listening to The Ringer MLB Show, where Michael Bauman will be back in his rightful place next time.